Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, November 18th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pascal. Looks like it's time to kickstart a Donald Trump defense fund. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman announced today that Trump would settle the Trump U case for $25 million. These were suits brought against him by former students. Eh, customers, student-like customers, Potemkin students, to get all Russian on Trump. So my idea for the Trump U defense fund has one rule. The lawyer cannot have graduated from Trump U. During the campaign, Trump said he would not settle out of principle. Then everyone comes after you you're known as a settler. Well, now it seems as if the settlers will be the problem of Mike Huckabee because he's reportedly being tapped to be Trump's ambassador to Israel. To quell the disquiet over Steve Bannon's ties to anti-Semitism, Trump made the obvious move of sending to Israel a Southern Baptist preacher. And General Mike Flynn has been tapped to be Trump's national security advisor, had been let go from his last Pentagon job for what he says is that he properly understood the threat from ISIS in a way the Obama administration did not. Other reports said he had a hair trigger and was abusive to staff. So here was Flynn. I was standing right next to him after the first debate on Long Island. He engaged with a journalist whose questions he did not like. I'm going to use Irish on you. That's bullshit, okay? He did not. He did not. You go back and you do your research, okay? You're done. I'm done talking to you because your research is poor. When you've done poor... Though to be fair, Flynn is a decorated general, three stars. He has knowledge. He's credited with trying to be a change agent. So it seems to be more a question of temperament and tactics as opposed to his disqualification being gross incompetence or inexperience. Pewter linings, people. Pewter linings. On today's show, it is an Antan twig. And for Slate Plus listeners, there is a not bad segment. To sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash plus. But first, Sasha Eisenberg is a journalist and an expert on how campaigns use advanced analytics to fine-tune things. He was one of the first to really peer inside the Trump operation, and he's here with a debrief. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. 
Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. This election defied the odds, it defied some norms, but it also defied the idea that had taken hold over the last few cycles, that Democrats were running circles around atavistic Republicans in areas of advanced analytics, meaning the algorithms, the computer programs that dictate reach and messaging and that help with turnout. They could even help decide which background, color, and font to use in campaign literature with which voters. But then Trump won. Trump won. His operation was called Project Alamo because it was run out of San Antonio on the cheap and by a computer expert who seemed to lack, well, certain degrees of expertise. Journalist Sasha Eisenberg wrote about Project Alamo for Bloomberg Businessweek. Hello, Sasha. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good. So tell me what uh, Project Alamo was when you went down to San Antonio. What you find? Yeah, my colleague Josh Green and I went and really got the first look inside the sort of data and digital operation that that the Trump campaign had built. And it was all based in San Antonio because um, it was under the aegis of this guy, Brad Parscale, who had sort of uh, was a effectively a local web designer and online marketer who had started uh, developing the uh, website for Trump Realty, which is the residential real estate arm of the Trump organization. And then so I think 2011, the Trump folks liked him because he worked cheap on San Antonio prices and not Manhattan prices. Um, he eventually did a website for uh, Trump Winery and the Eric Trump Foundation and Ivanka's personal website. And next thing he knows, he's getting paid $1,500 to develop the uh, the website for, for the Trump for President Exploratory Committee. I think our impression through the primaries was accurate, which is that the Trump campaign was doing very little of the sort of sophisticated stuff that that we expect from campaigns. The Trump campaign through the primaries was really that public-facing stuff of the big rallies and the the sort of ubiquitous interview presence. It was after the new year, Trump's opponents in the primaries began to fade away, and they started thinking about a longer primary season and a general election that the Jared Kushner in particular, the son-in-law, took the lead in um, in building a more of the traditional campaign functions that you'd expect. And those all ended up being centralized in San Antonio under Parscale's leadership. And eventually he had more people working for him every day in San Antonio than than were at Trump Tower. And they developed you know, their own version of a sort of modern data and analytics operation. One thing it's important to recognize is that a lot of it was not focused on the get out the vote stuff, but really on engaging his committed supporters, people who are already with him. But the Trump team is very interested in in raising money from them, but also getting them to to sign up for a list, to to give their uh, email address and cell phone number. Um, and and a lot of what they were doing in San Antonio was a very big list building project of the sort of Trump fan base. And they let the Republican Party, the RNC, and the state parties. Um, do a lot of the, the the local organizing and voter contact designed to, to to mobilize people to the polls. Right. And to underline your point about why a regular businessman or marketer wouldn't connect with get out the vote, think of the analogies that Trump would know. Um, 
he's on TV. If someone watches his TV show, The Apprentice, well, that's that's the end game. That's winning. Or he's making a product, a product like Trump steaks. Well, you go to a supermarket, and then if you see the brand, you're already in the supermarket. You know what that means. You don't motivate people. Hey, there's a thing called the supermarket. Get off your butt on this one specific day of the year. Go to the supermarket. And when the when you're there and choosing a steak, you might as well choose Trump steaks. So yes, it is totally different. But did you see this effort as this third? or fourth string kind of a joke of a Hail Mary version of what the sophisticated people in Brooklyn and with their computer program, which I think was called Ada, what they were doing. Did you see that as, you know, I guess this is their theory or the best they could do, but it is a pale comparison to the cutting edge stuff that the Clintons are doing. I sort of saw it as driven by different motives or incentives. I mean, part of it, part of the sophistication is just that the Trump operation started building this shop in San Antonio in June, and they were rushed and squeezed for time in a way that the Clinton campaign, which was around for 18 months, didn't have to be. And so you can have a kind of more patient hiring process, a more patient like R&D process in a campaign if you're doing it for a year and a half, as the Clinton campaign was looking ahead to the general election, even as they were fighting through the primaries, then this very slapdash thing that was assembled in um, in San Antonio. Uh, so in a way, Trump then wins, his theory wins out, which is I'll have big rallies and that'll get people super motivated. And I think maybe the smart money was on, yeah, that, that's not how it works. But maybe that was more how it works than we thought. Yeah. And, and I think that at the core of that is he had a mass media theory of persuasion in a far more targeted, narrowly targeted era, right? I mean, so one of the great things that you can do now in campaigns with all the data and analytics that's available that allow you to target messages at the individual or household level, whether through direct mail or digital ads, um, is that you can segment your messages to different types of people to say different things. Hillary Clinton's campaign was acutely aware of this. So when they were going and talking to right-leaning independents in the suburbs, they would send mail or, or digital videos with military figures and that when they were, you know, trying to mobilize African Americans in the cities, they would send pictures of Barack and Michelle. Trump basically was on mass media all the time, which meant that you're saying the same thing to everybody. And that seemed like a crazy paradigm on which to communicate when a lot of the things you were saying immediately turned off half of the electorate. I mean, I sort of, uh, in moments when I was had the reason to be far more cynical about the effectiveness of this, I, I would say things like, you know, you could develop a micro-targeting model to find people who hate Muslims and yeah. just send them direct mail about your Muslim ban and not go on network TV talking about your Muslim ban because you turn people off when you do. And he chose not to. And I think that that is the big place where Trump's conception of, and this gets back to how you brand Trump stakes, he wanted to be in front of as large an audience of people as possible at all times because that's, that's where his ego lives. And that sounded like horrible political communication. But at least in this case, it seemed to work. But I do want to talk a little bit about Get Out the Vote because uh, with this, we'd always hear the stats about number of field offices. And, you know, Clinton's was were, were swamping Trump. And we took that. It's hard to know what Get Out the Vote is doing. So we took that as a stand in for a very good, sophisticated model versus not doing much at all. And I wonder if your reporting informs that. And maybe one part of it that we missed is we kept looking at Trump and Trump's field offices. But 
I've also been reading reporting that the RNC filled in those gaps more than we acknowledge. So can you talk about that a little? Yeah, from, from an organizational perspective, the dynamic from the beginning was that Trump would rely on the RNC and the state parties to do all of that, get out the vote work that he didn't want to. And, um, you, you know, structurally, that's usually the way it works for arcane campaign finance reasons. You can basically just spend a lot more money through state parties than you can through a presidential campaign. But usually it's a presidential campaign that wants to direct the activities of those state parties to advance their agenda. And Trump basically said from the beginning, I don't care. You guys do it. I'll raise money for you to fund this. Um, but I don't really want to have to have input on the tactics. He ended up not really raising that much money for the RNC, as best we can tell. But it also allowed um, allowed the RNC and state parties to have almost entire, you know, complete freedom on on the tactics they use. And I think part of the story may be that some of the states where the sort of Republican ground game worked best, Ohio, Iowa, Wisconsin, were places where you had an incumbent Republican senator whom the state party was very invested in reelecting. And that they built and invested in a, in a get-out-the-vote infrastructure basically to get their senator elected, and Trump benefited from it. We should be thinking of kind of the Republican machine this year far more than, than just the Trump campaign as, as an organ of that. I think what we'll end up finding – I mean there, there are places where – the Clinton campaign, you know, and the and local Democrats turned hit their numbers. I mean, turned out, you know, Philadelphia, Miami Dade, actually throughout South Florida, uh, turnout was incredibly high. Yeah, I think they, we will. They did find, great. In te- they did great in Texas for some reason. Yeah, I think, but I think what we'll find in some of the the battleground states, at least, is that the Clinton campaign probably turned out a lot of or a significant number of Trump voters because their statistical models were wrong. I mean, one place is. You know, Cubans in Florida, the campaign was predicting that they would support Hillary at a much higher rate. They had a huge push for for Latino GOTV, focused some on Puerto Ricans in the center of the state, a lot on Cubans in the south of the state. They just ended up getting a smaller share of the vote. You know, there were there were Cuban precincts that Trump won that that they didn't expect. And so, you know, the story you told about GOTV is absolutely right, but it's predicated on the data guiding you to people who are already on your side. And if you've misread that, you can actually be successful at mobilizing them to vote. You just don't get their vote in the end. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sasha Eisenberg covered the Trump campaign, Project Alamo, and much else for Bloomberg Businessweek. So a former writer for Slate. You know, Sasha. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Mike. Thanks. And now the spiel. During this Antantwig, which is a three-week period, so during this last three-week period, we at the Gist got a broader range of more deeply felt mail than we've ever gotten before. And I am trying to figure out why, and I think it has something to do with daylight savings time. I cannot think of another reason. But, you know, maybe it's the election. Let me read you just some of the things people wrote. Frederick Bingham, this was on Facebook. I was appalled at the conversation between you and Jacob Weisberg. You condescendingly castigated enraged protesters for shouting, not my president. From Rich Miller. Have you used your podcast yet to explain to people why or how you screwed up so deeply in calming people's fears that Trump would win? I think left alone or not explained, it will leave your listeners questioning other insights of yours. Bitter. Bob Ashley wrote, you expect us to believe your post-analysis from the same people who are so wrong about the pre-election analysis? Okay, I'll still encourage your show, but you need some soul-searching. 
Similarly, Louis Roman. Why, if some polls were known to be unreliable, did the great 538 rely on them? Mike has no problem pointing out the nonsense in some of the Green Party candidates' positions, but he has an overwhelming problem in pointing out the nonsense of 538's current self-promotion. He has bias, evidently, and he needs to confront it and deal with it. If he wants to be the serious journalist, he obviously sees himself as and not be seen as something more than a witty advocate for causes he believes in. Well, witty advocate? I'll take witty. But to answer your question earnestly, Lewis, and others who wrote in a similar vein, the charge, well, first of all, specifically the charge of bias, I don't think applies to me. It's not that I'm not biased. It's just that bias isn't something that I'm trying to avoid. Uh, I want to be fair, but I have a point of view. I lay out this point of view. I'm trying to win you over to what is my argument or my bias. On the show, I have said that some mistakes I'm going to try not to make again is mistaking similar sources for different sources, like an election model, which are using the same polls that are a fruit of a poison tree. And I have also said that I'm going to rethink my relationship with certainty versus strong probability and how to communicate that relationship to you, the audience. And I would also like everyone to know that I literally went back and listened to all the Trump anxiety hotlines. I always express the chances of a Trump election as ranging from very unlikely to unlikely. And I would quote specific percentages, which were, we know now, likely inaccurate. But I never said Hillary winning was 100% sure or 99% sure. I'm not trying to be defensive, but I made pains to say things like, I think it's in the 90th percentile. And I made pains to say, eh, it wasn't that painful. I just would say, I could be wrong. And even in the very last Trump anxiety hotline, on the day before election day, I said, hey, I could be wrong. And if we are, we should go back and call this entire enterprise the Trump false reassurance hotline. Oh, yeah. You know, there was one time in the Trump anxiety hotline where I made an analogy because I'm a poker player, not a great one, but I have. And I analogize it to holding a very, very strong hand, but not a certain hand. But still, what you want to do in a very strong hand is not only to push as many of your chips in as possible, but get your opponent to call you. Which isn't saying that I knew I, as the poker player, Hillary as the candidate, would win. But maybe this poker analogy doesn't sit well with non-poker players. Maybe an avoidance of, yeah, anxiety-producing effects of wagering huge on something that's less than a sure thing is one reason why non-poker players are non-poker players. Also, the analogy is not great because in poker, you know the odds. And here, we really didn't because of the polls. On some other mail... Uh, from Brian Starr, I believe a majority of Trump supporters would generally be aligned with Democratic policies, but feel alienated from the Democratic Party. Holding a five-minute rant, scoffing at their stated feelings is not how to win them. I will be unsubscribing from this podcast. So a couple days after that, coincidentally, I did a spiel where I channeled a white working class voter who was downwardly mobile, and he would be objecting to the very idea of privilege, saying he didn't feel privileged. That got this email. Yeah, and how about you quit condescending to your listeners? We are welcome to believe in white privilege if we insist. The folks who talk about white privilege believe it because it's a fact. Now, we had that discussion because as part of the gist in the last few weeks, I tried to cast a wide net, talk to Republicans. We're going to talk to actual literal Trump voters and political consultants who worked for Trump or Trump-ish candidates. And I tried to explain why white voters are put off by talk of privilege or microaggressions. And I got a few responses like, disregarding microaggressions is a tad authoritarian. And Louise LaPera, who wrote, oh, 
I really expected better from Slate. Is this what I am to expect in the new era? Feels like Breitbart Radio up in here. And of course, when I discuss campus speech codes as a white man with a professor who is also a white man, I got accused of, you guessed it, white mansplaining. I am white. I am a man, really quite manly when you get down to it. And I explain how I think. White man explaining. So it's a portmanteau. I cannot duck, can I? So have a woman or person of color on to discuss this. Done. Keep listening to the show. Last letter. Hi, Mike. I'm a long time just listener. I listen to every single episode. I also picked up a new tone in your voice. You seem really shaken by the election. As a journalist, as a New Yorker, as an American, and as a compassionate human being, you're allowed to be upset. I only wanted to acknowledge your hurt and remind you that your words matter. We're in this one together from Andrew. Andrew, I thank you. I only read the criticisms and a lot of people wrote in to say they like the gist and appreciate what I'm doing and even understood how I could get it wrong. It it wasn't me alone. Did you know that? Anyway, I do have to say this though, Andrew, you might've heard something in my voice, but it wasn't hurt over the election. In fact, here were the circumstances on that day that you wrote. I've been doing these Amazon Echo spots. If you have the Amazon Echo, you could ask Alexa to play Slate, 90 seconds from Slate. That's me now. But doing them took a little longer than I thought it might that day. And then I had to deliver the chandelier to the chandelier guy. And I was wearing sweatpants and a thermal shirt because I thought I was going to take a jog afterwards. You know those thermal shirts that they're all like waffly? So it kept catching on the chandelier, all those little spokes and metal hooks or whatever on the chandelier. So I'd be walking, the chandelier was in an open box, and it would just be catching on my shirt. So I'd have to stop every like 17 steps to unhook my shirt from the chandelier. And I finally get up there and the chandelier guy and I, we go on and on and on. And you know, one of the things he's asking me is like, wait a minute, you're not the guy I was talking about privilege being bullshit. You're here with a chandelier. Anyway, I look at my phone and I got 20 minutes until I have to be in the studio and I'm about 20 minutes away as the crow flies, but I am not a crow. I am but a man. I have no choice but to run into work in my thermal sweatshirt and my sweatpants and did three interviews that day and I taped all of the spiel and I was wearing sweatpants. So Andrew, you didn't hear electoral despair in my voice. You were hearing the despair of a man wearing sweatpants in the workplace, which is a macro aggression against fashion, propriety, and God himself. Forgive me. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube's computer project named after a Texas attraction is Project Mount Blanco Fossil Museum. Just producer Mary Wilson has been tinkering with Project National Museum of Funeral History. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has got all the code written for Project Old Bluffton Underwater Ghost Town. Chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers, is just about set to launch Project Woman Hollering Creek. The gist, we're sitting on Project Marfa. Everything about Marfa, the whole town of Marfa. Oomperu depperu dooperu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>